Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And we're very pleased to have this show. I mean, we were like really struggling to make this happen. Uh, you're still in, in Lebanon, and uh, and you're going to be doing some more reporting on Syria. Uh, so we're, we're glad that we're able to do another show for you all this week. I'm glad, too. And I also just want to say I really appreciate the encouraging and kind words I received from several people after our show last week. Uh, when I kind of like opened up about everything that happened with the whole Syria thing. So thank you to those of you who've been supportive and who messaged me. Um, it means a lot, even if it seems like a silly message, it all means a lot just because like sometimes, you know, you feel like the world hates you <laughs> when this kind of stuff happens. So it's good to know that there are people who don't hate you. So thank you. Um, and I guess moving beyond that, where do we want to start? Well, that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's great to hear that you got such a, a, an outpouring of support personally and uh, you know, publicly. It was clear that people were very uh, appreciative uh, that you opened up about your experience. Um, and uh, even the guy from the Canary, uh, that, that Brad, um, who... Yes, yeah, Brad. Um, who I... Uh, you were were you on the same uh, bus or transport? Yeah, yeah, he, you, we, we were, yeah, yeah. And I, that's one thing I didn't mention last week is, you know, when all of this happened, when all the like details of this big conference got leaked out, we were all on our. I mean, there was like a big bus load of, load of journalists on their way to Damascus when this happened, and um, you had people who are like, you know, you have to remember, like journalists, especially Western journalists, are prime kidnapping targets. And so one of the points that I forgot to make that other people have made is that it was really reckless for people to, for people to leak the details of this conference while we were on our way, saying we were on our way. Because um, you can get people killed. Like, you know, there are groups that literally, like, will kill. That's why, they, I mean, there's groups that have kidnapped journalists and ransomed them and then killed them. Um, we all know this. This is what's happened in Syria to journalists. There are journalists who are still in custody of, like, various armed groups like this. So... Anyways, that was one thing that uh, Brad had brought up that I forgot to mention. Well, certainly, that a, it was really, really reckless. Certainly, a busload of certainly a busload of journalists would have been a, a great prize for some extremist group to capture. Well, I mean, yeah, just just for the sake of ransoming them, yes. And then also, you know, we know journalists have ended up not, you know, killed often. Um, and that's the thing is like that's how these a lot of these groups like made money by ransoming people and journalists. I mean, that's Western journalists, you know. Specifically, because unfortunately, in the region, your life is worth more if you're a Westerner um, in terms of who will pay for you. That's how our disgusting world works. So, you know, despite like it's like Arab journalists have definitely been killed. Local journalists have been killed more than anybody else um, because they can't you know, you can't make as much money off of them. But Western journalists, that's like the you know, that's like the pot of gold. All right. So, we've so had, yeah, we, we, we've had this big development here with. Uh, the government retaking uh, part of Aleppo, and we wanted to address that at the at the front. Talk about update people on that, and then talk about what's happening. Um, and also, you know, you've you were there, and so you can add some important context to it. Yeah. So just to be clear, I was on the western side of Aleppo, right. which has been under the government. Um, it's nobody can really go to the east side of Aleppo because it's just too dangerous for uh, if you're a journalist, especially because, again, you'll get kidnapped. Um, it's just not safe. And so um, anyways, 
the right what's happening right now it, sometimes it can be difficult because a lot of the reporting you're seeing on Aleppo is secondhand no one's there except for the people who are fighting and so all of the information coming out of Aleppo should be treated with a great deal of skepticism no matter which side it's coming from whether it's the government side or whether it's the opposition side because obviously like they're controlling their own narratives that said, um, I mean, it's really, it, it's not shocking, but it's getting really exhausted. It's like, it's just tired at this point. But, you know, all of the media reports are just basically basing everything off of what the opposition is telling them, what the opposition outlets are telling them, um, without even telling their readers, like, this is, like, it's like everything is secondhand. They're just presenting it as fact from some nonpartisan group, when in fact it's all coming from opposition media outlets, many of which have been funded by the U.S. Um, State Department and the U.K. Foreign Office. That doesn't mean everything that comes out of these outlets is not true, is, is untrue. Certainly, like, the East Aleppo is being bombed. That's, there's no one's doubting that. But, like... You know, that said, everything they say is like being reported as headlines and facts. And you've just got all this hyperbolic rhetoric coming from, you know, the U.N. based on opposition media outlets and what the opposition is saying. And, and the thing is, it's in the opposition's interest to drum up panic in the international community because they want intervention. And so that's what I mean by everything should be treated with a level of skepticism. Um and so one another thing I want to mention is that right now, so what's happening is the government is taking back these neighborhoods in East Aleppo. There's people that are leaving um, that, that are like being basically like coming out of these areas that, that have been under rebel control, saying that they were hostages and they weren't allowed to leave. Um, and, you know, nobody's really taking like people are just kind of ignoring that and saying that all these people are lying because they don't want the government to like harm them since they were living in rebel area. But we know for a long time now and even the UN has stated it, is that a lot of people, not all of them, but people who have wanted to leave have not been able to because they've been prevented by the people in charge or it's been too unsafe. And so either way, we're hearing really awful stories of what people have had to deal with on the inside, both in terms of being bombed by the government and in terms of living under the rebel groups, which are dominated by some really nasty characters uh, allied with Al-Qaeda. And so, or that are Al-Qaeda for that matter. Um, so that's what's happening there. And I can tell you after having been there, um, you know, the vast majority of Aleppo, the vast majority of the population of Aleppo, which is one city that is, happens to some of the neighborhoods were taken over by armed groups in 2012. But the majority of people there live under the government, live under the government side, live under government control. Um, and they absolutely despise not all of them across the board, but a lot of them despise the other side. Um, in fact, when I was there, I have to say a lot of the people in West Aleppo, especially at the hospital, when we're like wounded soldiers and a lot of wounded civilians were coming in who were hit by rebel mortars, they were, um, one thing you often heard from them was they didn't think the government was doing enough. They wanted them to go harder. Um, they were just exhausted after like five, you know, after four or five years of this. Um, and they just want it to be over. And they, they like, they hate the other side, like to the point where they were like, some people were like, just nuke it. You know, so um, and that's like I'm talking, you know, civilians saying this. So uh, so in some cases they feel the government isn't doing enough. And now they're all really happy. Like people I've been that I know in Aleppo are happy right now because they feel like their neighborhood, they feel like their city is being liberated. That's how they see it. They see this as their city being liberated from armed groups controlled by Turkey. Um, and there's a lot of elements of truth to that in terms of like, yes, armed groups that, you know, a lot of which answer to Turkey and other Saudi Arabia and Qatar. 
um, are the ones that, you know, came in and took over neighborhoods in East Aleppo. But um, one thing I find really interesting, Kevin, is right now at the same time we have this campaign in Mosul, in Iraq, to, to basically, as we say, as the Western media says, without question, to liberate Mosul from ISIS, right? Mosul is under ISIS control. They use a lot of ISIS uses a lot of the same tactics as the group East Aleppo. The big difference is we're happy about um, taking about the Iraqi government taking back Mosul from ISIS, and so everybody is celebrating that. Even as you know, humanitarian organizations and the UN sort of quietly warn there's you know catastrophic human. Um, humanitarian concerns here. People don't have access to water because of like the maneuvering and the fighting being led by um, the U.S.-backed uh, Iraqi army. And so it's just interesting. You've got two similar campaigns going on to basically exercise um, what are you know jihadist armed groups from these from these two like large historic cities. And the response by the media in the West is just, it's like completely like opposite. One you're supposed to be excited about and the other one is like a campaign of terror against rebels. So I just think that's an interesting, um, to compare and contrast the way those two things are being treated based on who's doing the bombing. It's probably good to move on to uh, what's, uh, I guess we'll call it a war at home here in the United States right now, uh, where uh, they have used military force, but not in the same way. Not uh, obviously at all to the same extent that we've seen in Syria, but uh, it's at Standing Rock with the Dakota Access Pipeline fight um, that we have seen military tactics used against the water protectors that are trying to stop this uh, Dakota Access Pipeline from being built. And uh, there is something I want to em emphasize before I get into a couple of the things I just wanted to say on this week's episode, uh, which is that one of the things that CNN and, and the Associated Press uh, and other outlets that are now covering are making people aware of is that 95% of this pipeline is already built. Um, there's a 5% that we are trying to stop from being built. And this 5% is the section that they want to build underneath the Missouri River and cut through uh, tribal land or land that is indigenous land. And uh, these tribes, uh, like the Standing Rocks too, that have been fighting this, all they're insisting is that this doesn't cut through their land. They could They could move the pipeline... Um, around and continue to build and the company would probably be able to do it. Uh, but they, for some reason, have chosen this battle and they insist that, that you know, this company, uh, Energy Access Partners, insists that they be able to succeed and, and defeat uh, these Native Americans that have been resisting them for the last months. So anyways, um, I don't know if you had anything to say to that. Just that I, I actually, I mean, watching from here, like, I, you know, I try to keep up as much as I can. And I do think that um, I, I am still surprised by how few headlines this is making. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it should be like, it, this should be headline news. It should be on the front page of everything. And instead, it's just like crap. Every time I turn on the U.S. news, it's crap. Um, every time I look at a head, like, like what's on the front page, it's crap. 
Well, um, I, so I did yeah. want to take a moment to skewer the uh, CNN who thought that, like, just by virtue of showing up, they have now done their job. But uh, Sarah Sidner was the broadcaster who was standing um, in the camp. And the camp has now had a blizzard hit it, so it's covered in snow. Um, and, and we'll get to a little bit more on that. Uh, but she was standing outside, and I, I kid you not, Rania, this was the, the thing that she said while she was standing out there in this camp. Uh, she said, here you go, people feel like this is home, especially those whose ancestors once ruled this land. And I was just listening to that, and I was what? like... What? What does that mean? And I was just listening to that, and I was like, please, do tell us why they no longer rule this land. Please... Please yeah, that's stop, like really vague. Please, and... please stop doing this casual folksy dance around the fact that they went through a genocide back in... Yeah, know, no one 70s. will say it. No one in the mainstream will say it. They won't. No one in the mainstream will say it. Um, it's really interesting. Like It's like you'd think that it would just be a common thing we mentioned, but... And, like... <laughs> and she stood out there, and, and, and she's all like really... Um, like surprise, like oh man, like these teepees are actually warm. Like Native Americans can really survive in the winter, and it's like no shit. Like they they have lived on this. They land. had no trouble. They um like for centuries. Like how did they learn how to how did they learn how to do this? Wow, like they're really fast learners. <laughs> and then and then they're like, oh, it's fascinating. They have horses on this reservation. Look at these animals, and they're like. You know, like, looking at it as, like, a spectacle without any interest in the, like, social issue that's going on at all. Um, God, it's, it's like, that's the word. That's, like, just, like, a bunch of colonizers. And I know. And, <laughs> like, that's how you... And it's, it's just incredible. And so, um, uh, so seriously, uh, the two things that we need to make sure we get in here before we move on to the next topic is that, uh, okay, there was an executive order that was issued by the North Dakota governor and he, uh, this is governor Dalrymple and, and he basically ordered, um, the evacuation of the, uh, the, uh, Osseti, camp of the of the sacred stone camp area that has had these people there for months the major encampment and uh as far as i can tell and the way that they responded Mm -hmm. to it is that they have no authority to get rid of them they're on this land this is their own land and they can have nine thousand people come be in in a camp on this land if they want in fact as uh we're recording this show on uh, December 3rd, there are now a couple thousand uh, military veterans who have showed up um, in order to help defend the water protectors if the police decide to mount some kind of offensive against them again like they did when they trained their water cannon on them and also fired off tear, gra- tear gas grenades, etc. Um, so uh, there's there's really little that they can do. The Army Corps of Engineers has ordered an evacuation too, and, and wants to clear the land and close it off from public access, but they also don't really have a stomach for using military force like the sheriff's departments in this state. So, um, you know, that's an issue. I mean, I don't think President Obama's administration wants to have one of their last acts in office be the clearing of 9,000 people from uh, a Native American reservation in order to help an oil company 
finish a pipeline. Um, yeah, totally. I would you would think so, but you know, Obama hasn't done anything really helpful, has he? Like, yeah, well, no. I'm that's not true. He did that. Well, no. Well, oh, but. I see what you're talking about. So the delay. There was a delay, and the Army Corps of Engineers is actually looking at whether they're going to um, give them a grant of the easement, which they need to have in order to complete it and and build it where it is. I mean, again. Um, just to make sure everyone knows, this was going to go through Bismarck, and they ended up rerouting it because it was found to be too poisonous to the community of Bismarck. So it was going to go through people. Who- well, I don't know if you know this, Kevin, but what might be poisonous for one community um, is actually not does not depending on how the color of your skin and um, how much money exists in your community. The more you have. Um, the more um, the more open your body is to being poisoned. That's, called, that's I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's called resilience. <laughs> it's called resilience. And if you've been through oppression, then you can survive future acts. Uh, you're, yeah, yeah, your you're genes, fine. Like your you're, body's like immune. Like if I shoot you with a tear gas, if if you've come from a line of people who have been oppressed, you're going to be okay because you've built up resistance. Yeah. You'll be fine. Like, I mean, okay, like you might, sometimes you might, depending on where we hit you, you could lose an arm. Okay. But you don't really need an arm. I mean, you're, again, you're resilient, right? Like you were like, <laughs> you survived genocide. You're fine. It's like, it's like white people what's haven't a, really gone. You? We haven't really gone through this. Like white people just, you know, this is, this is something we're afraid could happen white, to white, us. White people are, <laughs> white people of a certain class are, are delicate flowers. In fact, all people of a certain class are delicate flowers and the whiter, <laughs> the more fair your skin is, and um, and, and, and I mean this correlates as well with the amount of money in your bank account. The the more sensitive you are, um, so we have to be aware of that and be sensitive to that sensitivity is what I'm trying to say. It's only fair. I get you. That makes sense. All right. Well, we uh, should probably. Uh, I want to highlight this one story uh, quickly, which is really um, ghastly. So. There's a woman from the Navajo Nation uh, in Arizona who came up and has been at the camp uh, and there since uh, September 11th, um, and she was hit by a tear gas grenade uh, in her face on November 20th on that bridge. You know, we've all seen the images. We talked about this on the show. Um, she's now part of a civil lawsuit against the police departments that was filed filed by the uh, actually it's a class action lawsuit filed by the water protector legal collective um asking for an injunction against the curtailment of first and fourth amendment rights by using this is a quote it sounds like they're trying to stop military forces against them by using highly dangerous specialty impact munitions, explosive tear, gra- tear gas grenades, tear gas canisters, and a water cannon spraying high-pressure water as a means of dispersing protests and prayer ceremonies. Um, so, uh, anyways, what happened to this woman is that she was hit in her face um, when she... Uh, when she was out there um, on November 20th, uh, she asked a woman to move uh, away from the police line because she was afraid that she might not be safe. She was pretty close to this razor wire barricade. And then when she, um, uh, you know, she heard the firing of a tear gas cannon and looked up. And when she looked up to see where it was coming, this grenade hit her right in the face. And she closed her eye and um, it... Uh, 
it hit her right in her right eye, and and then she turned and she actually got struck by a rubber bullet when she was running away, um, and she fell down. She covered up with the bandana, and now her like eye socket was was bloody. And she had to go to the hospital and get stitches, but that didn't fix everything. She was in the emergency room overnight. She got an MRI for her right eye. Uh, The hospital staff actually woke her up, and she was released from the hospital, and she was in the lobby making a follow-up appointment when she got really dizzy, and she laid down, and uh, she couldn't stand. And the hospital security asked her what was uh, wrong, and then they had to readmit her to the hospital because she still wasn't okay. And so she was referred to a retina specialist, and this is outrageous. She went to something called Groob's Retina Clinic in Mandan, North Dakota. I don't know who these fuckers are, but you should never, ever give them your business. Uh, Because the clinic said they would not treat her because she was a water protector from Standing Rock. Oh, my God. Um, So the following day, she had to go to another place in Fargo, North Dakota, a hospital, and there she got an ultrasound. Uh, But there was, uh, quote, so much bleeding and hemorrhaging that it was difficult to determine the extent of the damage. And then uh, the next day, she had another appointment. This is is like a really disgusting saga that kept going there. The doctor informed her on November 25th that her eyeball had to be cut, or sorry, had a cut, and that the treatment would take months, and that she could not return home to Arizona because there's a difference in elevation, and that could affect her eye. And then said that the trauma to her eye would likely affect her vision for the rest of her life, and it was unclear if she will be able to see out of her right eye ever again. Oh my god, this is terrible. So... Like, absolutely horrible. So this is, um, and and this class action, there's a, there's a, you know, there's eight representatives, there's multiple stories, um, you know, just to quickly note, you know, there was one, um, young man who was, um, hit, um, uh, in the back by a rubber bullet, uh, while he was trying to help someone who was struck by a rubber bullet, uh, he attempted to curl up and shield his body with plywood, but he was unable to protect his head. They basically targeted him and shot him right in the skull, and he lost consciousness and had to get 17 staples. Um, and there's another woman. Um, she was hit. Um, she was hit. She's hit right in her vagina and doesn't know if she's going to be able to bear children. Um, she's been in oh my such, god. She's been hit. She's been experiencing so much intense pain. Um, in her abdomen area, and she she doesn't know, like, the extent of the damage, but she has trouble, she's had trouble, like, standing. So. Oh, my God. This is, like, really disgusting, right? And um, I don't know, you know, obviously I don't know where the lawsuit's going to go, but um, I will say that it's important that they had their legal representation get together and put something in the public record go before a court and challenge this treatment um, because thus far, um, for the most part, the local and state government is on board with everything that the police is doing to these water protectors. The federal government, there's been some senators that have objected to the treatment. Uh, The Obama administration, the White House, hasn't uh, objected. Um, If they've said anything, they've done like a thing of balance where they're like, we think everyone out there has a right to protest, but it needs to be peaceful and nonviolent. And then, you know, that's the extent of their commentary. So.
for our next topic, I wanted to talk about some ugly, ugly legislation that is moving through the Senate or, or passed in the Senate. Uh, it involves targeting people who are pro-Palestinian, speaking out for Palestinian rights. Uh, and they call it, what, the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act, right? Yeah, sounds really great, right? Sounds like we're gonna, you know, do something about anti-Semitism. Nope, not even a little bit. So this is apparently it was passed quietly in the Senate by unanimous consent, which is really messed up. Uh, that nobody opposed this, but I guess it's not surprising because it's the Senate. Um, but the point is, is this was supposed to be some sort of response to like a rise in anti-Semitic hatred after Trump's. You know, after Trump was elected, um, and instead, it basically responds to that or uses, exploits the rise in anti-Semitism to push what the Israel lobby has been trying to push for a really long time now, which is legislation at the national level to basically punish students on campuses for engaging in anti, like, in, in pro-Palestinian activism, and for you know, for criticizing Israel. And so this bill in particular, which The Intercept appears to have um, obtained uh, the actual, like, text of the bill, the legislation itself, basically what it does is it empowers the Department of Education to use the State Department's definition of anti-Semitism to investigate charges of anti-Semitism on campus under the Title IX Act of the Civil Rights Act, under Title IX of the Civil Rights Act. And so the problem with that is that the State Department's definition of anti-Semitism is extremely controversial and basically um, defines criticism of Israel as a form of anti-Semitism. And so this is really, really bad. Um, and it's really disgusting because it's exploiting an actual serious problem, which is the rise of white nationalists and neo-Nazi sentiment and groups under Trump and the, like, the empowerment of those groups, which comes with a lot of anti-Semitism attached. You've got groups like the ADL and APAC and other Israel lobby groups that are exploiting that uh, to back this legislation, and they're very excited that this passed. And this basically will have a chilling effect on free speech. Um, I mean, this is basically, this is an attack on free speech. This is policing speech on Israel, um, like we've always seen happen by using, you know, uh, really dubious definitions of anti-Semitism that aren't actually definitions of anti-Semitism. Um, and in the process... You know, you're attacking free speech, you're attacking left activism on college campuses. I mean, I'm just utterly disgusted because it's like neo-Nazis are on the rise, so let's attack the left. Yeah, uh, and just to make sure this gets in, uh, the definition that the State Department uses is sometimes known as the three Ds, according to Palestine Legal. Mm -hmm. And those are, quote, and these aren't our words, this is the State Department's language, demonizing Israel or applying a double standard to Israel, or delegitimizing Israel. And and perhaps if you've been following this closely like us, you recall that there's a part of the Democratic Party's own platform that has one of these Ds mentioned in it that they need to protect against the delegitimizing of Israel. Yeah, yeah, the delegitimization of Israel, which basically is the term that Israel uses to define people supporting Palestinian rights. And, you know, but to support Palestinian rights requires you to criticize the state uh, that is oppressing them, <laughs> which is Israel. Yeah. Um, 
Now, uh, to be clear, like I was actually really disappointed because uh, I believe it was last week, although it feels like it was years ago because time just like is weird these days. But uh, Keith Ellison, you know, he was under all this pressure because he is trying to get appointed chair of the DNC, which I'm something I totally support, released this statement uh, because there was like um, there was already like preemptive attacks and criticism of him for his stance on Israel from the Israel lobby. Keith Ellison is someone that Israel lobby has never liked because he is reasonable on the issue of Israel-Palestine and probably one of the more progressive, he's probably one of the most progressive people in Congress. I mean, again, that's not saying a lot, but in terms of the way Congress is, Keith Ellison's in the Progressive Caucus. And um, on the issue of Israel-Palestine, I mean, he's get visited Gaza several times. You know, he's not screaming in support of BDS or anything like that. That said, he like, you know, he wrote, you know, he supports, he's very vocal about ending the siege and blockade of Gaza um, and, saw, and, and, and and things like this. And then, of course, he was a big Sanders surrogate and Sanders came out and said Palestinians are human beings, which is a very controversial statement in America, apparently. And so Ellison's attached to that. Uh, anyways, the point is, is that I was really disappointed to see Ellison release this statement saying that he supports the Democratic platform and that means uh, protecting Israel from BDS. I was really upset to see that. But that said, um, I mean, Ellison is under all this pressure right now because the Israel lobby is like is like terrified of him and the, what he represents, not just him, but the wing of the Democratic Party that Ellison represents. If he were to be appointed DNC chair, you would be empowering the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which if you remember at the DNC, and we talked about this at the show, the Sanders-Ellison wing of the Democratic Party is young and supports Palestinian rights. They're, they go even further than Ellison and Sanders are willing to go publicly, you know? Um, so that is something that the Israel lobby is terrified of. So now they're all attacking him, and I'm disgusted to see it. They're attacking his, his past in terms of his activism during the civil rights or in the civil rights movement. Um, and his, you know, his support is like a young person. Um, he, said he had words of support for the Nation of Islam. And I want to make something clear. This is something that the Israel lobby has done constantly to black politicians in this country. And that is to use their civil rights history, their history, their involvement in the civil rights movement, which almost always includes some sort of praise or acceptance for figures in, you know, in black nationalist groups that may have also said mean things about Jews at some point, always uses that against them. Um, till this day, and I mean, even crappy ass politicians who are like, like badly, even like shitty neoliberal uh, black uh, like legislators, um, like you know Charles Rangel. Um, till this day, that's something the Israel lobby and people in it hold over these people's heads. Is like they'll do it in these euphemisms where like they'll threaten to bring up the past, and that always means painting them as anti-Semites because of whatever involvement they may have had. In like, the, in like a black nationalist movement at some point, um, even if it was just words of support. And so that's what they're doing to Ellison right now. Ellison's never been an anti-Semite. And I just find it so disgusting that these right-wing Zionists like think that they can get away with doing this. They do it all the time because they attack these black leaders um, as anti-Semites when they're not. And also like they just twist everything around and take what happened in the 60s and 70s around this stuff and turn it into something it wasn't. Like, you're talking about the most oppressed group of people in this country, 
which are like, you know, like, like black people during like, you know, Jim Crow time and, and after, and even now, and you're like, you've got these elite people, these elite white people, some of whom are Jewish, some of whom aren't that like turn to this, turn to this, like these tactics to try and paint them as like, as anti-Semites, because, you know, like Malcolm X said something about Jews in the 60s. Like, it's just messed up. It's so messed up. It makes me really mad. And it's not just with, like, Keith Ellison. It's actually recently, we see this happening a lot with black, they are, like, black politicians who express any solidarity with Palestine in particular um, are being dragged through the mud by the Israel lobby because they're easy targets. And they've got, like, other black, uh, like, black uh, leaders, political leaders They'll actually, like, who are, like, you know, the friends with the Israel lobby, they'll use them against these other black politicians. And it's really, really disgusting and underhanded and so gross when you've got a bunch of white people doing it, too. Like, there's something especially disgusting about this. Well, yeah, and also... That's my take. Well, and oftentimes when this happens, there's a complete uh, betrayal from the liberal class in their ability to defend against it and, and stand behind these people when they're getting attacked, they usually run from uh, these individuals who are are facing this kind of vitriol um, and this this kind of thing, um, or it takes on some legitimacy from establishment press. So um, Andrew Kaczynski, who is now with CNN and used to be with BuzzFeed, he published uh, a story for CNN. The headline is. Representative Keith Ellison faces renewed scrutiny over past ties to Nation of Islam defense of anti-Semitic figures. And when you go through it, 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 it reads like something from the days of the 1960s when everyone was all out against the new left. I mean, it reads like, mm-hmm. uh, it reads like he got a look at a dossier file um, and like I, I think the way you would call it is opposition research, um, mm-hmm. and and that 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 a- Andrew here thinks that he's doing something completely innocent, that he's actually um, investigating a person and and talking about something of public importance. But what he doesn't really understand or want to admit is that these issues are being relitigated now. These were all things that Keith Ellison had to deal with when he ran for Congress and became elected mm-hmm. as a representative. The people of Minnesota have already looked at all of this and decided that he's okay as a representative. And now what you're saying is that because he's going to run for, because he wants to be the leader of the DNC, we're going to have this conversation all over again. But you ought to take a look at the merits of these uh, criticisms against him and, and recognize that there is no basis behind them at all. Um, and also, mm-hmm. you know, Ellison has clearly stated, I have long since distanced myself from and rejected the nation of Islam due to its propagation of bigoted and anti-Semitic ideas and statements, as well as other issues. Um, but again, what 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 happens is when these leaders make such a the, such a statement like that is uh People like Andrew and other journalists spend the whole time like trying to create this balance, trying to be like, well, maybe there's something to it. Maybe it's maybe it's true that we need to pay some attention to his past. Uh, maybe we no, of to- course, of course, yeah. and it's really disgusting. And it's you know what? It's fine if you want to look at Keith Ellison's past, but I mean, the, Keith Ellison should not have to be writing op-eds in the Washington Post, repeating again that he proposes all forms of bigotry. And hey, I was young once, and I liked the civil rights movement. 
And, like, he shouldn't have to explain himself with this stuff. Like, Keith Ellison's record speaks for itself. And this is, like, an attempt to... This is attempt to tarnish the... Like, to tarnish and try and... Um, and try and, like, put a stop to Keith Ellison. Be, the, the, Keith Ellison and the people that... You, you know, he would essentially be empowering because of the progressive wing of the party. Stop them from from getting gaining any power in the DNC. And with the D, and this is like you have the Israel lobby and the establishment of the Democratic Party are now joining hands because they're basically the same thing um, to an extent. But they're just basically joining hands and using each other because they both have an interest in stopping Keith Ellison and the progressive young people he represents from gaining any power in this party. And so it's just really, really, really gross and disgusting. But the stuff, obviously, like you mentioned, I said opposition research. That's what it is. I mean, I'm sure Keith Ellison has been prepared to be attacked this way. He knew this was going to happen. So he's prepared to respond to it. He's not an idiot. Um, this is how politics works. And this definitely came from some opposition file that the Israel lobby has had on Keith Ellison and has on Keith Ellison. Um as well as the Democratic Party itself, uh, because he is like a, you know, Keith Ellison is like the Sanders, you know, is like a Sanders and that, you know, he threatens their interests. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's why what Andrew did was like, it's not, I mean, I, I mean, look, maybe Andrew went and he looked up, you know, Keith Ellison, you know, back at a certain time in Nexus and like found these articles or something, you know. But I guarantee you what likely happened is that somebody from the anti-Keith Ellison side came to him and goes, hey, here's some information. Have fun. Like, and he just, like, probably reported it, like, uh, you know, very dutifully. Um, and well, that's what happened. Like, it's just, it's so obvious. Is it? I don't know if it's working, though, because I'm not there. Like, is it working? No, is he probably not going to be in charge of the DNC because of this? Wait, well, first off, it's not working. Uh, but I do want to make sure that you, because you'll have something to say about this. The origins of this is actually coming from Steve Emerson's investigative terrorism project. Oh, damn. That makes total sense, though, too. But damn. So lovely. So, so the Democrats are just like, but, but that's why. So let, let me go off. Like that is what Andrew Kaczynski and others in the establishment press now are running with. And I take Andrew to be somebody who would hold himself out as a liberal journalist. Now he's at CNN. He's got to hold to objectivity standards that we completely think are bullshit. But also in his daily life on Twitter, I think he's a liberal person. And so I ask yeah. him. I ask him. You know, if if you are panicked about the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency, does it really make sense to be okay with engaging in this kind of seedy, sleazy journalism against someone who could actually be a force against Donald Trump if he was the DNC chair? I mean, he is the one of the not only just people. that. He's not one of the only people that can. But you mentioned Steve Emerson and Torres discredited operatives in the far right fringe of the Islamophobia movement. Like this guy, when the um, when uh, Oklahoma City uh, happened and Timothy McVeigh, you know, bombed the building, within like like an hour of this happening, or within hours of this happening, before we knew who had even done it, it was all over television, all over network news, um, telling viewers across America that it was like Palestinians and Muslims who did this, and Arabs. It was the Arabs who did 
this. And so for Andrew to be trafficking in uh, smears that came from someone like Steve Emerson, it's like, how are you going to fight Donald Trump if you're still giving a platform to bullshit that comes from people like Donald Trump's circle, you know? But anyways, um, at that on that note, I think that we're out of time. Yes? There was one thing I wanted to say before we, we closed, which is that while you've been in, uh, in, in Lebanon actually engaged in real and actual investigative journalism and, and, and doing things that journalists should do, there's been this kind of like philosophical conversation going on here. Um, and uh, you haven't really had a chance to like be a part of it. So I guess I was going to give you an opportunity. People have been debating fake news and like the extent to which mm. it's a pro- to which it's a problem, and the extent to which it actually made uh, Donald Trump president, and a lot of people blaming it on all of the like material that's on Facebook that people had access to. I don't know. I mean, wh- wh- where do you come down on this? Okay, like I think fake news has been a problem for a very long time, but not in the way it's being talked about now. I think that the mainstream media has been a very effective and unfortunate propagator of fake news, whether we're talking about, you know, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, or whether we're talking about giving a platform to climate change denialists until about three or four years ago. Like, until about three or four years ago, the mainstream outlets, the biggest outlets in the country that are taken seriously and treated as credible, were continued to give a platform, an equal platform, to climate change denialists, like, funded by the oil industry. So there are PR machines that there, like there are PR groups. Their jobs are literally to like push false narratives, and the mainstream media gives those like narratives platforms as legitimate all the time. And so I just find the conversation around fake news right now completely disingenuous. And also, it suggests that the mainstream press, and I don't blame every journalist in the mainstream, I'm just saying, like, as an entity, particularly the cable news channels, uh, the mainstream press was more responsible than anyone else, more responsible than fake news for elevating Donald Trump. We all know this. Like, he got, what was it, $2 billion at least, $2 billion in free advertising because of how much coverage every single batshit crazy thing he said was given on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and, you know, whatever other channel you can think of. Like, that is the, like, they they played a role in this. And now there's, like, this level, there's, there's so much denial and refusal to even engage in the most minimal amount of, like, reflection and introspection into how Trump came about. And so they're just trying to grasp at anything they can blame except for themselves as, like, liberal elites who are a part of the problem, you know? And so I think that's what this fake news stuff is about. And it's also about this, like, this, like, resurgence in, like, you know, or um, this kind of attempt to to bring back the Cold War, like, making... It's like it, it, it fluctuates. One day, it's, you know, Donald Trump won because of fake news. The next day, it's because of Russia. The next day, it's because Russia was funding fake news. It's just, it's like, so absurd um, that they will, I mean, they'll blame anything except for themselves. And so that's what I see happening right now. Yeah, and I think... Um, and there is a conversation to be had. Oh, sorry. Well, I was going to just jump in here and and uh, address the fact that there are now these blacklists that are floating around. 
that uh, groups mm-hmm. that are shady that you don't know who the, who they won't tell you who these groups. It's a lot like the Canary Mission, really, which we've talked about before. Um, who is much more aggressive than these and and more serious in their um, neo McCarthyism. But like they have these blacklists. There's like three now that are out there. One of them from the the this proper knot. Um, had Truth Out, Naked Capitalism, and Black Agenda Report on there. So what I really think we should also be say, mentioning here in, in the, on this topic is that the establishment press is threatened by us. Like, you and I, we threaten mm-hmm. them because they see that, like, we're doing... Not only are we doing a better job in some cases, but we're also resonating with people more, and people are furious at them and leaving them, and they're worried about not having subscribers. Totally. And, you know, I do have to say, like, I there is a conversation to be had about fake news, but we're not the ones doing the fake news. It's like there are sites out there, but they're they're basically using some websites that like that push bullshit and right wing bullshit. And they are they're like conflating them with like marginal left outlets and independent media that is trying to cut through the mainstream's bullshit. You know, these are this is like gatekeepers trying to like enforce their um, enforce their like or you know trying to make sure that like we don't have any credibility, especially after everything that happened. I mean, they're being criticized uh, more than they've ever been. They're having to deal with a lot of criticism, and, and so they totally do feel threatened by people like us and like media outlets like Truth Out and like Truth Dig and like Black Agenda Report and Democracy Now. And so it you know of course they're gonna like it helps them to just paint us as like some Russian agents instead of like having to deal with the fact that like people want people there is a craving for the truth people know they're being lied to that's the thing people understand and recognize they're being lied to and that actually makes it easier for right-wing sites especially to swoop in and give them simple explanations for why if something doesn't feel right you know but it just is amazing to me because the that's who ends up getting empowered like breitbart news is empowered by neo-mccarthyism you know yeah that's who wins well i just want to emphasize here um, as we as we end the show, that we didn't create this problem, um, and, and that we can't be expected to solve it. Uh, you know, in the same way that you can't go to a bunch of American Muslims and say, "All right, police yourself, stop terrorism." It's like, well, we we I, I can't be expected to look at every niche left wing site and make sure that they're fact checking their work and doing good investigative journalism like that's not on me i'm not right. it's not me, to my job to go around and make sure that they're not sensationalistic and exaggerating the extent to which you know bernie sanders is being uh having the primary rigged against him and destroyed or wh- whatever is going on that you are upset about like uh that's just not me like i i'm gonna like i have my stuff to do i have to focus on it and like you have your stuff to do and we're not gonna police our own no, no. I mean, no, not even our own. It's like, you guys, why don't you concentrate on maybe policing your own shit? Like, the mainstream, you know, con- why don't you police the mainstream media? Like, they're full of bullshit to- more than any of us. You know what I mean? Like, we're trying to cut through their bullshit, if anything. And so I just find it so absurd and hypocritical. Like, you know, for people from these outlets that literally sold a war based on lies. Yeah, I mean fake news. <laughs> like I mean for you to be. I mean fake. Was it was it fake for you to tell people that Donald Trump had no chance of winning? I mean, like when it happened, they were in was total it fake shock. for yeah. you? Yeah. Was it fake for you to like call Sanders some leader of a white messiah cult? Like, 
I mean, I mean give me a break. And also, is it, is it fake that, like, every time there's a holiday, whether it be Christmas or the 4th of July, that you hype the threat of terrorism without any evidence whatsoever and get everybody agitated and fearful? I mean, that seems pretty fake to me. Like, no, exactly. Exactly. I'm just, I'm so, it's like, I'm done with this. Like, like, I don't know what else to say other than I find it so ironic that the mainstream press is pushing a story about fake news that's actually fake. Like, it's a fake story about fake news. It doesn't get any more meta than that, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So this is the world we live in. And, uh, okay, well, um, uh, I wish everybody the best. I don't know if you have any parting words for our listeners. Uh, but, again, thank you, everyone, for listening. Yep, thank you. We'll be back next week.